Today, I'm going to teach you about the spiritual discipline of confession. The practice of acknowledging our failures before God, without hiding, unguarded, and completely sincere. And all the disciplines that we've been learning about in this series take a long time to develop. Prayer, study, solitude, guidance, worship. These are practices that take years to build into your life, but this morning's subject is actually different. With confession, you can make real progress all at once. Because when you choose to confess, the objective reality of God's forgiveness in Jesus, which can feel like an idea that people talk about in church, can become an immediate part of your subjective experience right in here immediately. And when that happens, it's absolutely beautiful. In his book, The Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster actually tells the story of a transformational experience that he had in confessing his sins before a trusted friend. For years, he'd felt like there was a kind of barrier to his spiritual growth, like there was a kind of wall up between him and God. He didn't understand why, but after some self-reflection, he decided maybe there was some hidden transgression, some sin that he'd buried that was putting that distance between him and the love and nearness of God. Isaiah in the scriptures teaches that our sin separates us from God. So he decided to take a catalog and, and each morning for three mornings in a row, he sat down with a a paper and a pencil, and he prayed that God would bring to mind the faults and failures that he had been guilty of at different periods in his life. The first morning, he focused on his childhood, and he wrote down everything that God brought to mind. The next morning was his adolescence, and then the third morning, he did this for his adult life. If you tried this, do you think you would have anything to write on those papers? He called a trusted friend and he asked him, would you be willing to hear my confession? They sat together and one page at a time, slowly and intentionally, Foster read what he had written. And the whole time his friend just paid attention and listened quietly. When he finished, Foster folded up his pages and went to put them back in his bag. But his friend leaned forward and gently took those papers out of his hand, and then he slowly tore them into little pieces and threw them in the waste paper basket. And then he leaned forward and he put his hands on his friend's shoulders and he looked him right in the eyes and he said, because Jesus is gracious, you are forgiven. And then he prayed, thanking God for his grace, for his friend, asking God to heal his friend where he needed healing and free him where he needed to be freed. And then as the two sat in silence, something which Foster did not expect happened, his friend then opened up and shared something with him that he'd been carrying all his life long and never had told 
anyone about. Now, Foster says that this experience was one of the most significant in his entire Christian life. And what I'm going to show you today is the value and the importance of confession from Scripture. And then I'm also going to teach you how practically to both offer and then receive a confession from a Christian brother or sister. And here's why. It's simple. Because the breakthrough that he experienced, the removal of this distance between him and God, is what I hope for and I pray for for each and every one of us. If you have a Bible, open to Psalm 32. Our teacher is going to be King David, the psalmist. He had experienced the joy of confession and forgiveness. And and when he had that experience, what he wanted was to share it with others. And so he wrote this psalm. And it's going to teach us this morning about the pathway to forgiveness through confession. In Psalm 32, he starts with a celebration of the happiness that comes when a person experiences forgiveness. Look at verses 1 and 2. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In these two verses, there are three pairs of terms which name our problem and God's remedy. Look at the first pair, transgression and forgiven. Transgression is the act of crossing a line, passing a boundary that should be respected. You were meant to stay on this side, but now you've gone over to the other side instead. God drew that line for your own good because you don't belong over there, and yet you've gone over there even though it's bad for you. And because you have trespassed and defied God in this way, you now possess guilt which means a rift in your relationship with God. The only remedy is forgiveness. The Hebrew word forgive here means to bear away, to carry off. Your relationship with God can only be restored if God chooses to bear away the guilt. Look at the second word pair, sin and covered. Sin is from the same semantic family that the word transgression comes from, but it has a slightly different meaning, to miss the mark or the way. Picture the right pathway, but it's over there because you've decided to walk on the wrong pathway. You chose to go your own way, even though God made it clear that this is the way you should be walking. You have missed the mark. That's what sin is. And when we disobey God and get ourselves on the wrong path, it's an offense to his goodness. A scandalous breach is created, a stain on our spirit, which we cannot wash clean. The only solution is that our sin should be covered. Now, we try to cover our sin all the time, pretending that we're innocent, but it doesn't work. Only God can cover sin. Choosing to put our offense out of sight, taking it away, 
burying it down, removing it from us as far as the east is from the west. That's the only remedy. Sin is covered by God. Look at the third word pair, imputes and iniquity. When our actions are morally distorted, not equitable or just, that's iniquity. And every iniquitous act on your part means an increase in debt between you and the holy God. What you owe puts an impossible strain on the relationship and it will forever be beyond you to pay it back. The only remedy is mercy, God's decision not to impute the debt to your account. Clearing the books, releasing you from what is owed, not imputing your iniquity. Now this psalm begins with a declaration that all who experience God's remedy are happy. Deep down, all the way at the very center of their being, satisfied, at peace, at rest with God. Our problem, transgression, sin, iniquity, completely beyond us to fix. But the solution which God offers freely is the perfect remedy in every case. So who is the one who experiences the blessing of God's remedy? Look again. It's the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. This means the person who isn't hiding anything at all from God. The one who stands before him in complete sincerity. Imagine for a moment what it would look like for you to do that. If you were to do what Richard Foster did and, and make a long list and then you are standing before God without hiding it, but, but it's right there and he sees it and you know it. What would it be like? Make this personal. And picture your childhood, your adolescence, your adulthood. When David, when, when David, the author of this psalm, first felt the need for confession, he was an absolute model of deception. He was not a man who stood before God honestly. He did the wrong thing. He committed adultery and she became pregnant. And then he tried to manage it by hiding it. First of all, he tried to deceive her husband and trick him into believing that he was responsible for his wife's pregnancy. When that didn't work, he engineered the man's murder and made it look like an accident. And he did all of this because he thought that he could avoid the consequences of his sin if he only could manage to hide it. Do you know that you do this same thing with your sin? I wonder if anybody else can remember moments where you're cognizant of doing the wrong thing, but shame makes you choose to appear to be in the right rather than admitting that you've been wrong. Does anybody else do that when they're arguing with someone who's close to them, for instance? 
or you're caught up one more time in that thing that you shouldn't do. It's very hard for us to take responsibility for our transgressions. We try to blame other people. We seek to manage our iniquity by deceit, and we really pretend that we've not done anything wrong. We try to hide it from God, pretending with the people around us, and eventually lying to ourselves becomes like second nature. In David's case, this actually almost worked. But hiding our sin has profoundly negative spiritual consequences. Think of this for a moment. Even if we were able to hide from everyone else what we had done wrong, it's a guarantee that when we bury our faults, it has a corrosive impact on our spirit. It puts a wall between us and God and it stops us from growing. Listen to how David described the consequences of hiding. Verse 3. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. To keep silence is to persist in the work of deception. He doesn't say, while I was silent, while I kept silence. That means persevering in make-believe, pretending innocence as a deliberative strategy to manage your guilt. Please, if you do this, admit it in this moment to yourself at the very least. Whenever you employ that strategy, you die spiritually. Let that thought sink in for a moment. Like a body wasting away through groaning all day long. In Hebrew, the word groaning there is more like roaring. Imagine the anguished cries of a wounded animal. When you work at hiding your sin, that's what becomes of your spirit. And that's because sin fundamentally changes your relationship with God. Please understand, the reason to dwell on this subject is what God wants is to have a free and open and joyful connection with you. He wants that for you. Sin spoils that. And and instead of his hand being experienced as a supportive and protective presence in your life, when you hide, instead his hand weighs heavy upon you, oppressing rather than liberating. And your spiritual strength will evaporate like water in the summer heat of the desert. Now there was a spiritually sensitive man who knew what David had done. His name was Nathan. And he had the courage to go to David and tell him. He gently but definitively confronted David with his guilt. And David did the only thing that was left for him to do, which is to go to God looking for mercy. Whatever is on those pages of yours, the door to God's mercy is 100% wide open for you. And and there on the other side is the gracious and merciful, loving God who is just waiting for you to come to him with your guilt. Look at what David says here in verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. 
If there is one distinctive element in the Christian faith that rises up above all the other distinguishing features of what we believe as followers of Jesus, I think it's right here. It is that the God who is holy and perfect and who calls us to righteousness is at the same time perfectly merciful and loving and he actually delights in extending forgiveness to us whenever we are ready to stop hiding, no more pretending, and simply and frankly uncover our guilt before him. When we confess, he is faithful to forgive. Confession results in forgiveness. That is the promise that we have from the word of God. Not only here in this biographical poem, in in this psalm, but all throughout scripture. Listen to these promises. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That's Isaiah 1.18. God will cast all of your sins behind his back. That's Isaiah 38, 17. Your iniquity will be sought, but will not be found anymore. That's Jeremiah 50, 20. Every transgression of yours will be tread underfoot, cast into the depths of the sea. That's Micah 7, 19. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. That's Psalm 103.12. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1.9. Open your heart to this truth. Jesus died to save you from your sin. He has done that. It is a reality that when he died on the cross, the legal record with its demands against you was also nailed to that cross. When we confess, that objective reality, which was true back then, can become an immediate part of our subjective experience right now, and we can know the liberation that comes with God's forgiveness in the present. The only question is, how do we do that? And here, I'm going to be as practical as I can in hopes of creating the easiest pathway for all of us into the joyful experience of God's liberating forgiveness in Christ. The simple answer for how to do it is to find a trustworthy Christian friend who is a good listener and then to share your sin with that person. And when a friend does that for you, and let's hope that because of this message, some folks in this church will choose to open up to you perhaps, then you listen and then you tell them that God has promised to forgive them. We all need this. Every one of us, without exception, every one of us is a sinner in need of God's mercy and Jesus has given all of us the responsibility of reminding one another of God's forgiveness. And that's why we practice this in the presence of other disciples. So in order to help, I have three practical steps for how to give and then how to receive a confession. Step one in opening up and giving a confession is to review. Spend time in self-reflection in hopes of discovering things that need to be set right in your life. In prayer, ask God to help you become conscious of the sins for which you need to ask forgiveness. Ask him to 
help you stop avoiding the things that you always want to avoid and let them come into your mind. And then when you become conscious of your failures, take notes and be specific. If you try this and nothing comes to mind, go to the Ten Commandments and then read them one at a time and see if God doesn't bring something to mind where you've fallen short. Maybe you have put something other than God in the first place in your life. Or maybe you failed to honor your parents. Or you've been dishonest with yourself and with other people for so long that it's hard for you even to tell the difference between the truth and the lie. The first step in confession is to perform an honest self-assessment, a spiritual review. The second step is to allow yourself to experience regret. When you see where you've disobeyed God, it is natural to feel weighed down by guilt. And when that happens, you should let yourself experience that sorrow. Don't try to avoid it. It is right for us to feel bad when we've failed God. Here we have to be careful not to get weighed down by guilt. There's a difference between healthy and unhealthy sorrow. Godly regret does not end in grief. Okay, this also comes from Scripture. Trust me here. Instead, it turns a person away from the wrong path and points them in a new direction, and that is the third step in a proper confession. It is to let your sorrow cause you to repent. Repent just means to turn around, to have a change or a reorientation in thinking, in mind, and in action to leave behind the old path and set off in a new direction. For each sin you recognize on your list, ask God to help you know how he wants you to change and go off in a new direction. And then ask the friend who hears your confession to pray not only that God will forgive you, but that God will also give you help to go in the new direction that he will empower you to maintain your determination to conquer sin and give you the strength to walk in the new path that God has made plain to you. These are the three simple steps to a proper confession. If you do this and share what you discover with a trustworthy listener, you should expect to experience a more immediate sense of God's forgiveness than you have in your private prayers. Anyone in here who's done this, who's actually sat down with another person and shared their sin will know exactly what I mean. I had never done this until a friend uh, did this with me back when I was in seminary, and it is remarkable what happens when you open up to the right person. Of course, you'll have to find the right person, someone who's trustworthy, who's empathetic and understanding, someone who can keep a confidence and doesn't need to go tell someone's secrets to feel good. If you don't know who to ask, while you're praying, ask God to help you think of the right person and then go tell them, I need you to listen to me. Now, if someone asks you to hear their confession, I have three steps that you should follow as a person to receive another person's confession. The first step is easy. Pay attention. Be as attentive as you possibly can to what they say. This will mostly require silence from you. And this is a step that I'm telling you, you have to intentionally take because chances are you'll want to say something to them as soon as they start to talk. 
it's going to maybe make you feel uncomfortable and you're going to want to interject to say something to make them feel better. You may want to start offering advice or say something about how what they're telling you is not that bad after all because so-and-so told you about something much worse. Resist this impulse completely. Just listen. Be quiet. Even when it seems like they're done, give room for more to come out. Leave silence, pay attention. The second step, it overlaps with this first one, is to pray. While they're sharing with you, ask God to help you see them through the cross. If they start saying something that you've never heard anyone share before, and this may happen, while they're speaking, Say to God, help me see this brother, this sister of mine in the light of the cross. In the light of the cross, it's mercy for absolutely everybody. And so pray that God would help you see them in that way. Then also pray that God will comfort them where they need comfort. Pray that God will strengthen them where they need strength. Pray that God will give you wisdom to know uh, where to even pray for them. Pray that God will give them healing where they show you their wounds. And then when they finish, you're going to pray aloud for them. And here is where you bear the greatest responsibility in hearing a confession. And this is the third step. It is to proclaim. Tell them. Because Jesus is gracious, your sins are forgiven. If you wonder, what right do I have to tell another person that? Let me answer that question. Jesus himself gave the responsibility of forgiving sins and the authority to do so to his disciples. At the end of the Gospel of John, we see that. He tells them, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. He said this right after breathing onto them the Holy Spirit. If you are a follower of Jesus and you have the Spirit of Christ in you, then it is your gift and your responsibility to tell the person who has shared their sin with you that they are definitively forgiven. Proclaim it. Declare it. That their sin has been removed by the grace of Jesus. What happens if you begin to practice this? The first thing, this is so good, is that the power of shame in your life will disappear. At least in relationship to that one person who you've talked to, And because of that, you will be much less inclined to hide yourself from God because you're too proud. And that will be magnificent for you. The distorting effects of pride will vanish from your friendship with whoever you've shared with. And then when you practice this kind of honesty with that person, you will both grow closer to God. And because of that, you will both become much better witnesses to the gospel. And that's what God wants us to be. When, when, we're, when we're receiving his salvation, he wants us to show it to other people. The gospel says that God has decided not to deal with us according to our transgression, but instead in Christ, God became sin, the one who knew no sin, became sin so that we could be the righteousness of God. And when, when confession becomes a part of our routine as disciples, then we shine a bright light 
to others so that we show a clear picture of how it works with God, which is not that you perform better than other people and then you're accepted, but rather you're able to stop hiding and then receive the gracious love of God, which promises forgiveness. That's what will happen if you start to practice this. And if this catches on in our church, in Renaissance Church, which I'll tell you, it tends to do. Maybe you've been in a religious community where the most outwardly righteous person gets the most attention. That's a community where self-righteousness spreads. But if this catches on in our church, then we will become a place where people are unafraid to admit that they don't have it all together. And then we can become the kind of community that Jesus means every church to be, a welcoming place for all people, where no one has to pretend to be anything other than he actually is to belong, where no one gets points for outperforming other disciples. Instead, we become a place where people are growing to follow Jesus in a way that invites and inspires others to love and serve him together in freedom. That's actually the mission of our church. And the discipline of confession is one definite strategy to make us more faithful and effective in what God has called us to. I hope that someone who hears this message today would be inspired to reflect and then moved to a godly regret that leads them to repentance and an act of confession to another disciple. And then they experience the liberation that comes with the subjective experience of God's forgiveness. And I hope also that all of us, because of this time we've spent together, become more capable of receiving confession from our brothers and sisters. More kind and empathetic and open and understanding because of this time we've spent together. If we will, then we will see God developing us spiritually in ways that we've never experienced before. Let's ask God to help us on this path as we join our hearts together now in prayer. God, we thank you for the gift of the gospel which promises that you do not treat us according to our transgressions, but instead you are gracious and you forgive us. We thank you for the example of David, and for his decision to share about his own experience of confession and forgiveness so that we ourselves could be guided now but by what he wrote all those years ago. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, which is ready to receive us at all times. And we thank you for the renewing power of your love. We thank you that you make us new when we are open with you, and we set aside all deceit and stand before you honestly. God, for each and every one of us who has been reminded of a past failure and fault, take away all shame and help us be honest before you and with one another. And then give us the grace to receive your forgiveness and experience the newness that comes with your salvation. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.